Welcome to the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. In the last episode, I had the pleasure to speak with Chris Bergstrom, president of AmalgamRx. What intrigued me about AmalgamRx and our discussion is that a new breed of DTX may not be a DTX at all, and the word digital may just disappear from the vernacular. In this episode, I'm excited to speak with Corey McCann, CEO and founder of Pear Therapeutics. Pear, in their own words, operates at the intersection of biology and software technology, where researchers and clinicians work side by side with software engineers and developers to create the next generation of therapeutics. But before we dive in, I briefly met Corey at JP Morgan conference a few years back and enjoyed listening to his presentation. He and the team set out to build the Genentech of digital therapeutics and they're well on their way. Now we jump to my conversation with Corey. I'm here with Corey McCann, CEO of Pear Therapeutics. Welcome to the show, Corey. And first of all, would love for our listeners to get to know you as a person, a little bit of your background and what brought you to even start Pear Therapeutics back in the day. Eugene, first and foremost, thank you for having me here and thank you for the work that you're doing around the digital therapeutic space. It's just, it's an absolute pleasure on my side. So just by way of a super quick personal background, I have a little bit of a non-traditional background for a digital health company or a digital health entrepreneur. I was a physician scientist originally, so trained as an MD, PhD, did a lot of work in cellular and molecular neurosciences. And for people who've seen, uh, if you Google the term brainbow, you'll see all sorts of kind of cool pictures of multicolored neurons in different brain regions. So that's what I sort of did in my formative years, if you will, took a bit of a non-traditional course from there, went to McKinsey thereafter worked in their healthcare practice out of their New York office, and then moved over to the venture buy side, as they say. After that, first was with a smaller firm by the name of Rivervest Venture Partners, and then more recently was with one of the larger healthcare firms called MPM Capital. And I didn't start out looking for digital health companies. I started out looking for biotech companies. And really, the genesis of Pair was thinking about were there opportunities to sort of drugify cognitive experience, if you will. I know that's sort of a hoity-toity way to describe what we're doing, but at the end of the day, there was this observation that said that we've done just about everything around molecules, but we have a pretty good sense that lots of diseases are treated and the brain changes and grows at the interface of molecules and activity patterns. And can you basically take those activity patterns and industrialize them and turn them into a therapeutic modality? And so I guess the rest is history and we can talk through that stuff too, but that's, that's the brief origin story. Cool. So first of all, I'm going to look up Brainbow because you got me uh, really curious on that. And, you know, I think the Genesis is part of that fund. You guys were looking at, again, to your point, drugify some of the digital therapies. I guess it was already starting to be called that way back in 14, 15 I'm always curious then on top of that, the name itself, like Pear, was it just completely random? I'm sure you got asked this question, but I don't think I've ever read that anywhere. (laughs) So I guess for my own personal delights, you don't get to name companies fun things in biotech. They're all very serious, Greek sounding things. Um, And so sort of the (laughs) idea of getting to name your company after a fruit was personally interesting for me. Um, I, I think where this makes just a little bit more sense is... As we were first looking at this space, we saw a tremendous opportunity for drug software combinations. And what I mean is places where pieces of software directly collect data, 
to directly inform drug dose, amount, frequency, timing, and then marry that with a digital a set of digital therapeutic content. Again, all to create you know, some sort of an efficacy effect, but really creating these blended products. And I think if you start to think about that world, there's frankly pretty stupid play on words, which is that we're pairing drugs and software, bring that together with the personal desire to name a company after a fruit, and here we are. I just kind of thought maybe you were trying to be like an apple for digital therapeutics, hence pear or something. But anyway, that was my guess. <laughs> it's, it's another way to explain the same questions. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So I think you know some of my background. I spent a number of years in a big pharma company. And as driving some of the digital health initiatives, you know, in the earlier days, I was trying to describe, well, a drug pipeline has a pipeline, right? And you're doing experiments and you're betting on a number of things. And so instead of doing onesie twosie efforts, you you need a pipeline of digital right services, businesses, et cetera. And maybe to our listeners and viewers, explain a little bit of, because I think you were either quoted or said something around that you wanted to be the Genentech of DTX. So maybe you can describe in parallel a little bit, what was the reasoning behind it? And then again, educate our listeners on what that actually meant to you. You know, when I think about this space, I think there is a tremendous amount of value in scale. I think this is obviously a new space, and because it's a new space, it's a place where there's just a ton of infrastructure to be built. And I think that's a tough thing to do as a one-off company. And so really everything that we've thought about has been with scale in mind, and that's from our commercial products, it's through to our pipeline and our rolling up of the space, it's through to our platform, which is an end-to-end -end platform that allows you to deliver digital therapeutics but it's also from our capabilities. So really having an engine to be able to discover, develop and commercialize these products again and again and again. And you know, I'm not sure that I would put too much stock in the Genentech of digital therapeutics comment, but if you look at their trajectory, you know, for folks who sort of haven't looked at it closely, I mean, in 1985, they commercialized recombinant growth hormone and that sort of signaled the beginning of this whole new therapeutic modality. And then if you fast forward to their 2009 Roche acquisition, none of their products were the products that they started with. I mean, they were Avastin, Rituxin, Herceptin, but these were all products that had been built from the physical platform and developed and commercialized via the company's capabilities. And so I think when we think about the metaphor, it's really to say, we think that this is something big. When we do the bottom-up build, we think there are hundreds of opportunities to modify standards of efficacy with pieces of software. And I know that sounds quite hyperbolic, but again, we think this is a big opportunity. And the way to be able to get there is to build infrastructure that you just wouldn't build if you were commercializing a single asset. I'm also curious to step back to the very early days as you were at NPM and then got the concept idea of Pair. So I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, but 2015-ish when you got this started officially, what were the fundraising efforts? Because if we track back to what digital therapeutics and the name, and again, don't want to get into the details of when and who started the name, but those were early days. You said it yourself. What was those fundraising efforts like to explain what the heck it is, You know, what's the possibility, what's the TAM, all of those? Just briefly, if you can talk about it. Yeah, I mean, and actually we were sort of out even in the earlier days. So I think like the formation when we started looking at the space was like 2011, 2012, 2013, we incorporated. And, you know, I agree. I think probably one of the least interesting questions in the space right now is who invented the term digital therapeutics. But let's suffice to say it was not 
common parlance when we were out <laughs> fundraising our, our initial capital. I think what we really tried to do very deliberately was bring in investors that we knew and trusted. And so many of the investors we had worked with before and you know, I think for many people out there have seen the product of, you know, bad board members, bad investors. That's, you know, if you're trying to build something big, that's the death nail. And so we were really selective about the people. We were also really selective in trying to bring together a cross-disciplinary set of investors. So it's not to say that we thought that you go out and get the traditional biotech mafia, or you go out and go down Sand Hill Road and knock on doors. It was really to try to pick out, you know, who would be best of breed in each of those respective disciplines. And then thereafter, this can't be an investor that's looking for a quick flip. It has to be someone that really understands that you're trying to build a whole new industry, that there are hundreds of products to be created, and that isn't going to hold you hostage for your, you know, let's say six-month trajectory. And so if you imagine selecting on the basis of those criteria, you go from a rather large set of investors to a rather small set of investors. And, you know, I think all of the investors that we brought in were really poised to want to develop large stories. And I think to that end, we didn't get into a lot of conversations where we were haggling about, you know, billions of dollars on the TAM. I think that that wasn't so much the point. But with all that said, we did find that we made lots and lots of tech investors uncomfortable with regulation and lots of healthcare investors uncomfortable with the iterative nature of software. And so I think you wash, rinse, repeat, you have lots of those conversations the wrong way, and you wind up with the syndicate that to this day, we're very proud of. Listen, for the entrepreneurs that are listening in, I think you said it best, at those early stages, you want partners to build this with, right? And that's the absolute key. And we've heard about orphan and board members and all these things that just go awry in these early stages. Since we're still talking about, you know, money here, I'd love to maybe touch base a little bit on your initial hypothesis. Let's talk about DTX business and then maybe how it evolved over time up until now. You know, it's probably more of an interesting story if there was a pivot. I think essentially the business that we built today is the business that we went after from day zero. What we set out to do was to basically de-risk the development of this new therapeutic class. And so we did that in a very methodical way, which is to say, can you first demonstrate that software can create drug-like efficacy? Can you then get that drug-like efficacy on label? Can you turn that label into something that prescribers will find value in and patients will find value in? And can you then really institutionalize that to the point where payers are paying for this product-based vector? And you know that's what we've been looking at from day zero. I don't think that we've really diverged from that with the exception of maybe one asterisk that I would put on the sentence, which is... That again, as we started up, we really were thinking, you know, let's go all in on the hardest stuff possible. And so let's be building these drug software combinations where you're collecting physiologic data to inform PRN dosing with a therapeutic layer. I think we all acknowledge that there's a tremendous opportunity for those products. We continue to build toward them in our pipeline, but our initial set of products turned out to be things which were a bit more de-risked i.e. more toward the neurobehavioral interventions. And again, we didn't set out to say we're modality specific. I think it's just when you're thinking about managing a portfolio of different investment opportunities, you need some low risk stuff in there. And so that's sort of how we got, we got moving down this neurobehavioral direction. 
What a perfect segue, right? Because your thesis, to my knowledge, and the pipeline is all around changing behaviors, right? And that you can alter the course of a disease by behavior change. And that is, we all know that this is so hard, right? So maybe we can chat a little bit about that and how you're doing it. And what's the, obviously, without the magic secret sauce and all the studies and all of that, but just let's talk about it. behavior change is hard. I think behavior change is really hard. And I think the traditional means of building behavior change-based products has been even harder. And I guess what I mean by that is when I think about the industry that you know we stepped into in 2011, 2012, 2013, it was sort of predicated on this notion that you can push different pieces of software to large populations of healthy normals. You can learn lots of things, you can iterate really quickly, and you can extrapolate like crazy, and then this product will work in different disease populations. And I think that there's some merit to that. I think in mental health, there's probably a lot of similarities between dysthymia and healthy normals, or in metabolic disorders, lots of similarities between obesity or hyperlipidemia and healthy normals. But I think the notion that we've tried to push is really that if you're going to go after high cost and frankly diseased populations, you basically need to start in those populations. And so we've really been some of the first that have done the dedicated, really just in the weeds, user understanding, clinician understanding, building of products in collaboration with these different patient populations and creating products that are just very, very specific. And what that means is that the rates of engagement and the behavior change that you're able to drive are remarkably higher than what's been seen before. It also means that you can't just take what you've learned from indication number one and apply it to indication number two, three, and four willy-nilly. I think that's one of the parts of the secret sauce. I think another part of the secret sauce is really embedding these products into clinical standard of care. And so when we look at patients for whom these products are most successful in the real world, they're patients where the clinician understands the value proposition the clinician has prescribed multiple times for multiple patients and has a sense for how the product works in their workflow and in their practice. And then it's patients where there's this virtuous cycle where the clinician mentions to the patient that they will be monitoring their progress on the dashboard. They monitor their progress on the dashboard. There are conversations and the patient is subsequently incented to engage even further. And so there's something that's sort of magical about this prescription path and I don't think that you really get full integration into a traditional medical paradigm without sort of the degree of medical validation that comes with that path. You mentioned earlier when we were describing around the behaviors and it's the, also the experience, for lack of a better term, for the end patient slash you know, health consumer. And part of this podcast is also demystify, right? What the heck is digital therapeutics and what does that actually look like from a end user consumer patient perspective. So maybe you can briefly describe and maybe we can pick Somrist. I know, you know, insomnia I'm sure is on many people's, you know, top of their heads, so I think it'd be a great example to talk through. Yeah, sure. So for our Somrist product, this is the first product that we've launched via our remote care platform. And so essentially what that means is that if I'm a patient with chronic insomnia, I can self-identify and I can engage with rich media. So think about it as being Facebook ads, think about it as being banner ads, all of the things that you would expect to see as a consumer of a healthcare product or any other sort of product. And so there's then a click to learn more and through then an experience that 
looks very much like what you would expect to see for any piece of consumer technology, there's the opportunity to go to a telehealth visit. And so in that telehealth visit, the patient is screened and there's a whole set of pre-screening criteria like what you would expect to see for a HIMS or a HERS. But then there's a live remote clinician encounter where the clinician evaluates the patient and then writes the prescription for the SOMRIS product. And that then starts a cascade where the patient is in touch with our ParaConnect facility. And ultimately, there is a dispensation of this prescription digital therapeutic or PDT product. Once the patient is on the product, Somrist is a nine-week prescription. And roughly speaking, there are sort of two big therapeutic modalities at play here. One is something that's called algorithmically driven sleep restriction. And so there, the patient is walked through a whole bunch of recommendations on when to sleep, when not to sleep. And it's a little bit paradoxical in the insomnia space, but in many cases, sleeping less equates to sleeping more downstream. And so that's sort of the initial part of the product, and that's all algorithmically driven. There's a little bit of a transition in weeks two, three, and four to more traditional CBTI content, which is about helping the patient to really understand their motives for treating their insomnia and some of the behaviors around bedtime, for example. And then the last phase is essentially the consolidation phase. So it is to take all of the behaviors that we've worked on in weeks zero through six and really turn them into something which is long lasting. And I think it's actually that last phase of the product that drives some of the crazy long-term efficacy data that we've seen. And on label, there's a six-month follow-up after the nine-week script. That's now been extended out to an 18-month follow-up after the nine-week script, which shows pretty significant impact on insomnia behavior in ways that you just wouldn't expect to see for pharmacotherapies like benzodiazepines or like Zolpidem. You touched on the telemedicine visit, and obviously you are a PDT or prescription digital therapeutic. Where do you see the role of not just the doctors, but the nurses and health coaches? Because I always say, I mean, just like with a pill, you know, and every episode, you know, the, the listeners will hear, I hate the term of adherence, but there is a level of adherence even to a digital therapy, right? Are you going to use it? Is that changing a behavior? So in short, role of the docs, nurse and health coaches surrounding the digital therapeutic. You know, in the PDT model, the healthcare practitioner sort of starts the cascade, if you will. So they're ultimately the prescriber. And then again, because we're dealing with what are generally speaking higher acuity patients, there is a human in the loop who is doing things like checking into the dashboard in order to provide a backstop and in many cases really have a leveraged clinical encounter. And so I think a good example would be for our Reset and Reset O products. I mean, there you can find currently a human behavior counselor who will see the patient once a week, once every two weeks, once every four weeks. And if you imagine a 30 to 60 minute check-in, you know, most of that time is going to be about pets and the weather and sports and just sort of general small talk and being able to dive right in and say, I see that on Friday evening, you uh, regularly experience increases in your cravings and triggers and you seem to have issues with the module entitled dealing with situations involving use. I think that's sort of the kind of leverage that we're looking to bring to the clinician. So I don't see these things as being mutually exclusive. I think they certainly all work together. 
that said, when I think about my personal definition of this space, it is software to treat human disease. And so I think the distinctions that I would make are, these are things that treat diseases and don't address traditional health and wellness conditions. And these are things where software is the curative agent, as opposed to a human being counseling on top of a digital layer. And I think once you sort of start to think about that framework, you probably see some of these sort of leveraged telebased businesses be very successful. I think you see PDTs be very successful. And then I think you see consumer health and wellness apps also be very successful. But I think they are distinct verticals with distinct advantages. Listen, I love it because, again, to the listeners, I always ask the same question. Where's the guest's head on prescription digital therapeutic and the blending line of disease management 2.0? And to a certain extent, you already answered it, but I just wanted to kind of maybe get a little, you know, two more cents on it from you. You know, for better and for worse, there's a lot of unmet need in this world. And so I'm confident that there's enough unmet need that all of these business models will be highly successful. You know, I guess when I look, you know, three, four, five years into the future, I think that what you're going to see is all of these business models deployed at the very same time. And I think COVID has really showed us that in spades. You know, I think you're going to see patients who see a telemedicine clinician and they see that telemedicine clinician once a quarter, maybe once a month, but I don't think that capacity is going to change fundamentally in the next three to five years. And then there's some sort of glue that sits in between those traditional telemedicine encounters. And I see that as the PDT. And so when we look at the engagement that we see, I mean, we see patients engaging every day with some of our products. And so it is that day on day engagement where I think you'll be able to really see safety and efficacy demonstrated in the real world in what is a fully virtual context. And then you layer all of the virtual pharmacies on top of that, and you're not leaving your home to be able to receive your medications as well. Love that vision. And I guess part of that is, you know, same thing, given my background, I've always kind of questioned because DTX companies, I mean, if you think about what you described before as a consumer experience, right? You know the end consumer, you know how they behave, you're actually helping them with behavior change. So in that future world, does DTX company like yourself, quote unquote, swallow a pill inside if needed to augment the digital therapy? Or, you know, once you guys grow enough, a pharma company with, you know, in the same space will potentially acquire you, right? And swallow you. There's no right or wrong answer as always, but I'm just curious where your thoughts are on it. Yeah, I mean, ironically, and this is something I would have never seen, but there's been a whole cottage industry that sprung up around speculating upon this very question. And you know, I, I'll be very, I'll be very humble and say I don't know. What we're trying to build is a fundamental pillar of healthcare. And when I think about digital therapeutics, I think about them on par in terms of import with things like medical devices or pharmaceutical products. And whether it is digital therapeutics that drive the pharma industry or the pharma industry that drives digital therapeutics, insofar as patients are impacted, you know, I think those are both fine outcomes. I think if we think about what we're seeing today, I think that pharma is coming to understand that drugs need a digital layer. And it's a little bit silly to think that a product as sophisticated as a cell end or gene therapy would not collect real-time data about its end user. That's just absurd. And it's even more absurd when you think about the price of some of these products. So whether pharma wants to do it for the patient or not, they'll be doing it for the payer very soon. And so I think you're starting to see that degree of convergence. 
I think you're also starting to see pharma think differently about the value of digital monotherapies in their pipeline. You know, I think we're still in the part of the industry where it's better to be a consultant than anything else, because all of these pharma <laughs> companies get a new strategy every quarter. It's very much TBD. And, you know, you hear some pharma companies come out and say, we've got a new strategy. We're in monotherapies. We're really interested. And then the strategy is different in a quarter. So I think that's a trend, which is going to take a little bit more time. I know for probably a nanosecond, you put your old McKinsey hat back on, right? But, <laughs> but for a nanosecond only. You know, we touched on pharma and, you know, kind of the big elephant in the room that you probably got asked many, many times. And there was a bunch of stuff. I don't want to dwell on what happened with Sandoz more as an entrepreneur to entrepreneur discussion. Key lessons learned for, I'll say, the next breed of trailblazers in the space. Yeah. So, I mean, I think first and foremost, we've had and we continue to have a strong relationship with Novartis. They were investors in the company long before the Sandoz partnership and they remain investors in the company. You know, as we just discussed, I think there's a tremendous opportunity for pharma to bring value to the DTX business. And in that context, there was a time when Sandoz was sort of very aggressively moving away from being a traditional small molecule generics player. And it made a lot of sense for Payer and Sandoz to think about a partnership. It was a really, really interesting experience to be able to see parallel teams work on the same problems. And, you know, people in tech love to A-B test. This is almost organizational A-B testing. And it was a period of time for Pair where we learned incredibly quickly, in many cases, from seeing what worked and in many cases from seeing what didn't work. And I think if I try to crystallize all of that learning into something which is vaguely interesting for a podcast, it's all about speed of turns. And when you think about being a tech business, I mean, they make product changes so quickly that humans in many cases are taken out of the loop and it's basically all a computational exercise. And when you look at the pharma business, I mean, in many cases, they develop products once every 20 years and the PDT business is gonna live somewhere in between, but it's gonna be closer to the tech side of the spectrum than it is the traditional biotech side. And so, you know, really thinking about how do you create an organization that makes a breakfast mistake, a lunch mistake and a dinner mistake none of which are terminal mistakes, but all of which help to move the organization forward in the next day. That's what's going to make companies in our space succeed or fail. And that is very, very different from the way that pharma operates. And I think if you want to think about one sort of painfully obvious example, you know, in the pharma commercial world, there's this thing called MRC or Material Review Committee. And what MRC does is it thinks about all of the communication materials you can use around your commercial products. And a traditional pharma MRC may meet quarterly. You know, everybody says they meet more than quarterly, but a lot of those meetings get canceled. And, you know, it's not, it's not a living, breathing process. These are regulated products, so you got to run through an MRC, but that MRC almost has to run daily. And, you know, if you can just sort of put on your bear hat and think about the organizational change that it would take for a little company to come in and say, you guys are going to run MRC every day. <laughs> you, know, you can imagine that there's a little bit of conflict inherent in those positions. Absolutely. And I took the hat off so I can move a little quicker as an entrepreneur, just a little bit quicker. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my journalistic partner on this podcast, Brian Dolan, who is the founder of Exits and Outcomes, and as I like to call him, the digital health detective. 
Let's see what question Brian has for our guest today. Okay, here's my question. And in this one, I'm going to ask you to look ahead. So in five years time, what do you predict reimbursement will look like for prescription digital therapeutics? And if you had to pick, what's the most important thing that has to happen between now and then for that prediction to come true? Thanks, Brian. That's a great question. And not surprisingly, one that we think about a lot at pair. You know, if I set the stage, so in five years, I think you'll have PDT products across a whole host of indications. In many of those indications, these products will be standard of care. And I think you'll have those products propped up by robust platforms that really address things like prescribing, they address data collection, they really address many of the workflow issues that we see today. I think if you think about that industry and that view of the five-year future, this is a place where payers will demand prescription digital therapeutic products because many of these products will be priced lower than the medical value that they create. So not providing access for these products is going to be leaving money on the table. So I'm very bullish on the future state of the org. I think that shouldn't be terribly surprising. I think if you want to get down into the weeds on just the tactics of how we get from where we are to steady state reimbursement, you know, there's a whole question around benefit designation. And I think five years from now, you will continue to see these products reimbursed as a hybrid pharmacy and or medical benefit. And that's very much like what the drug world looks like as well. I mean, there are lots of drug products that get paid for as medical benefits. So I don't think there's anything wrong or surprising about that but I do think that you'll see a good deal of hybrid benefit types. I think you'll also see different PBMs play differently. And you've seen it already. You've seen some of the PBMs go very much toward the health and wellness market. You're starting to see some of the PBMs and you will continue to see some of the PBMs move more into the PDT direction. And so I think unlike drugs, there's going to be a little bit more PBM specialization, but everybody is going to want to be pulling these products through a value-based agreement. And I think VBAs are sort of something, and this is from someone who's in the trenches that everybody talks about, but they're a little bit difficult to implement and people don't like to implement them as much as they like to talk about them. And I really see PDTs as a product that creates enough data that it makes VBAs user-friendly. So I'm very, very bullish on VBAs in the space. This has turned into a little bit of a long-winded answer, but you sort of asked, what's the killer item? You know, we're in a place where we need a federal benefit type for prescription digital therapeutics. And there's a whole conversation around specifically how would fee-for-service Medicaid pay for the products? There's a straight shot on Medicaid. There's a straight shot on some Medicare, but fee-for-service Medicare is currently boxed out. And so in the near term, that's where we've been pushing legislation and I think that's sort of the binary moment that allows these products to flourish from a reimbursement perspective. Listen, I, I always rely on Brian's tough questions. And actually, I think he took it easier on you because that was more of the future looking, which, you know, like you said, there's a little bit of a cottage industry there. But, you know, as we started with you, you know, part of this podcast is actually get to know the people behind the brand name, in your case, Pear. I would love to actually end this with what is your why and what gets you up in the morning? 
Yeah. I mean, I love to solve problems. I love to build things and I love to do it with amazing people. That's my Shangri-La. And, you know, as I think about the ability to create a new product class of software to treat human disease, which is on one hand, like incredibly out there and so science fiction-y that lots of people don't even know what you're talking about. Yet on the other hand is incredibly deeply rooted in, you know, the blocking and tackling of healthcare like reimbursement mechanisms. That's just fun to me. And, you know, I think if I wasn't doing this, I'd probably be doing something very much like it. This is just a really cool experience for me. Awesome. Well, listen, it was really, really a pleasure having you on this podcast. And thank you for spending the time and educating all of us. Thank you for including me. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for tuning into Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to hit that subscribe button to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're then automatically notified when we post our upcoming episodes where I speak with dozens of leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Brian Dolan's Exit and Outcomes, you can always find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. You can connect with me personally on Twitter at HealthEugene or follow my journey of writing my first book, Heart Pill to Swallow, at heartpilltoswallow.substack.com. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.